Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to the Run Run Live podcast episode 4-381. Hey folks, how's everybody doing? I'm doing fine, thank you for asking. Here we are in February. Are you watching the uh, Winter Olympics? They had the opening ceremonies last night. You know, aren't they exciting with all those fun winter sports? I don't know about you, but I particularly like the snowman building. I think the Czechs have a real shot at gold there. And with the Russians banned for doping, that leaves the snow fort building and snowball fight category wide open. And who can forget Dmitry Pushoff's overhand ice ball of 88 in Calgary? And I don't think anyone can unseat the French in competitive pairs snow angels this year. They've just got that... Je ne sais quoi. Right? Been a long couple of weeks. Started out well with the Derry 16 miler. After we last spoke, I ran it as a surge workout and it went fantastic. I finished in almost exactly two hours and 15 minutes. People were a bit startled to see me laying in those three minute surges during the race. I'd just go blowing by people like they were nailed down. And then I'd pull up and settle back into an easy run. So like I said, I felt great. Finished with a good kick and wasn't at all sore afterwards. And that was the end of a pretty big build week. Then coach threw me into another big build week with two long surge runs. And I did them before work down by the river. One of them in a snowstorm and the other at 10 degrees or so. Nothing like an hour and a half surge run in a snowstorm before work to get your cheeks nice and rosy. And this week I had a bit of a down week. Had a bit of a down week and not down in the running sense, but down in the sort of emotional, physical sense. A coach gave me speed work and I had a really bad day Tuesday. I had to walk away from a 7 by 1600 workout that I was trying to do on the treadmill. And I was trying to do it after work, and I was just mentally and physically exhausted. And I rarely give up on workouts, but I just could not will myself to execute. I got a little bit into the fourth rep, and I was like, I'm done. 
<laughs> and then I yelled at coach. I said, why are you giving me all this speed work? For God's sake, man. <laughs> why don't I need speed work? But it was okay because it forced me to reevaluate my expectations, especially my expectations of myself. And I've got to come to grips with not being able to do the paces I used to be able to do. And I have to just get my brain out of the way and execute the workouts to the best of my ability. And I'm putting too much pressure on myself to live up to a different Chris, a Chris from 10 years ago, right? And I have to put that baggage away and I have to get out of my own head. So I did a ladder workout uh, Thursday night and I did it in again after this... Uh, funeral that I went to. So it was at night, cold, dark, and right after an ice storm in my neighborhood on Thursday night. I said, dang it, I'm just going to go out and do it. And so I programmed it into my Garmin and I just ran as hard as I could and didn't worry about my pace. And it wasn't so bad. And I wasn't. I was actually surprised at some of the paces I hit by not paying attention to pace. So I think I turned the corner by having a bad week, if that makes any sense. So tomorrow, coach has me scheduled to do a 10k race simulation, and I hate these race simulations. But he wants to see what I've got, so I'm just going to go out like I did Thursday night, run it by feel, and again, not worry about pace. Uh, so, my friends, <laughs> I've got another great gym story for you from last week. Actually, I'll give you this one as a math problem and, and as a choose-your-own-adventure story. So I discovered something interesting. It turns out one of my daughters has underwear that looks very similar to my athletic underwear, or what my family refers to as my man thongs, or what we would have called in the 1970s a jockstrap. So, so here's your math problem. If you have the following set of choices, A, going commando in your running tights when it's 10 degrees out, B, wearing your cotton briefs that you brought for work for that workout, or C, wearing your daughter's underwear to that workout. And if you also have the choice, because you have to go to work after this, of going to work commando in your cotton briefs or in girls' underwear, how many different combinations are possible, assuming you cannot repeat any of the options for work or workout, and what is the formula? Come on, you want a few seconds? Well, originally I thought this would be a factorial, so three, three prime, but I don't think it is because it's, a, it's only two situations, work and work out. So therefore, unless one of you math geeks corrects me, I think it's a simple square of three. Three times three equals nine different possible combinations of commando, cotton briefs, and girls' underwear. That's what I think. I could be wrong. And let's move on to the choose-your-own-adventure part of the story. So you find yourself in a gym locker room at 6.30 in the morning. It's 10 degrees out. You have a surge workout. 
You reach into your backpack for your running clothes and you find a pair of girls' underwear instead of your athletic underwear. You have cotton briefs to wear to work. What do you do? On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. What to do when you forget your watch or your watch dies on you in a workout. So how to do even the most complex workouts by feel. Yeah, some of my days are a bit hectic, as I'm sure yours are too. You've got too many things to remember, and maybe you aren't getting enough sleep. You forget stuff, I forget stuff. This is one of the excuses people use to fail at training, forgetting stuff. I mean, what do you really need to execute a workout? Some items are totally spurious. You don't need your music. You don't need your headphones. Maybe you like that, but you don't need it. What about shoes? Yeah, I mean, you need shoes unless you're a barefoot runner, but you don't need specific shoes. You can execute a workout or even a race in an old pair of shoes. It's not going to kill you. What about clothes? Well, depending on where you are, you're going to need some clothes. But there, too, it doesn't have to be perfect. I have substituted regular t-shirts for tech tees or dress socks for tech socks when I forget to pack something. You may look goofy, but it's, you know, it's not optimal, but you can get your workout done. But what about your watch? What about that ubiquitous Garmin or other device that we all have and we've all been wearing since the turn of the century? I'm here to tell you, you can still do your workout without a watch. Furthermore, you can do that workout without any watch at all. So here's the scenario. You head out for that workout. You get 20 minutes in and your watch dies because you forgot to charge it or it didn't seat in the charging cradle just right. You're mid-workout. What do you do? You are adrift in the sea of running without a rudder. What do you do? Okay. So, first thing you want to do is you want to have redundant systems, right? So, if you can plan ahead at all, you can have redundant systems. I own a cheap Timex Iron Man watch that serves as my backup for my Garmin. If I forget my Garmin or it's dead, I can just use the Iron Man to gauge my workout. It doesn't give me distance or heart rate, but it gives me the time, and I can fake the rest. And, of course, the other redundant timing device these days is your phone. And I'm sure many of you use one of the popular running apps on your phone. You could use that as a backup if your watch dies. And finally, if you are in a race, you can ask the people around you for pace and time information. You can do this on a training run, too. If you know approximately when you started the workout, you can get a reading and estimate time and distance. The second thing you want to do to prepare here is to know your distances. If you have an event like I had where you get a total running watch blackout in the middle of a workout, it helps to know where you are. If you run the same routes all the time, you can make a point to remember the waypoints. When your device chimes at the mile mark, make a note of the physical milestone that's close to you so you can remember it. 
That statue is about two miles. That bridge is about 40 minutes out. And this way, when you're lost, you can ballpark the distances and times and still get your workout in. And in addition to that, number three, you need to know your effort levels. So at the same time that you're observing the distance and the time benchmarks in your training, also observe your effort levels. When you're doing that workout that calls for zone two effort, what does zone two feel like? When you kick it up a notch into zone three effort, what does that feel like? Make a mental note so that you can approximate those effort levels when you don't have the watch. This is known as perceived effort. But what about specific workouts? What about intervals? How do you estimate how long or how far an interval is? Well, as it turns out, you can do this without a watch as well. If it's a regular route that you run all the time, again, you might remember the spots where you start and end your interval distances. For example, you start at this tree and go to the end of the straight path, and that's about three minutes. But even if you don't, you can still figure out times. And the way you do this is by counting footfalls. When my watch died, I was doing a surge run. This means I pick up my effort into zone three for three minutes every 20 minutes. And I remembered approximately where the 20 minute marks are in the route where I would pick up those, do those surges. But how would I know what a three minute interval was? Well, it turns out this is very easy. This is simple math. If you're a good runner with a decent form, with decent mechanics, you are going to run at a cadence of somewhere around 80 foot strikes a minute. Or if you need more granularity, that's 20 footfalls per 15 seconds. So if I need three minutes, that's 80 times three, or 240 footfalls. And therefore, these three-minute pickups are simply raising my perceived effort level to zone three and counting my left or right foot hitting the ground 240 times. Try it. It's surprisingly accurate. The math is easy. The methodology is simple, and it scales to any workout. If you don't think you can count that high, just count to 100 and then restart at zero for as many as you need. The thing to remember about workouts is close enough is close enough. It's the spirit of the workout you want to accomplish. The precision, not so important. And I know many of you are super wrapped up in the data of your runs. You know, I run with these guys who can't not round up to the nearest mile at the end of a run. It's just compulsive. It's in their heads. All this approximation gives them the willies. Well, get over it. When you're stranded in the wilderness of a run without your watch, you really have no choice. If you make a point of observing your paces, observing your distances, observing your times and your effort levels, you will find that you start to internalize them. You may be off by a couple kilometers or a couple seconds, but it will be close and you will get the workout done and get the benefit of the workout. And that's a good set of tools to have in your bag. And now for today's featured interview.
So anyhow, Megan, let us begin. Okay. (laughs) It has been almost, as near as we can figure, a decade. How did that happen? I don't know, since you and I have spoken. I don't know how that happens. Life just gets in the way. I can't believe it. I'm very busy. I know. uh, And you were an ultra runner when I first uh, started talking to you. We probably did a podcast on veganism at some point, right? We did. I think that's the last time we spoke. Yeah. I want to say that sounds familiar. Yeah, I'll Long have to look time. that up yeah. and put that in the show notes. Um, I'm yeah. still doing it. I'm up to episode 380-something official episodes, some pits and starts. That's amazing. But I'm still doing it because I like it. I like writing. Yeah. I like reading. I like talking to people, so I figured I'd keep going. Oh, it's awesome. When you give us the new 200 words on who you are and what you do, now that uh, we're a decade older, the two of us. Oh, my gosh. I rarely do any road racing anymore. I did so much of it. And then I got injured really badly. Right. I remember that. Bad, yeah. My stress fracture. I had a really bad stress fracture and a hamstring injury. So when I came back from that, my doctor pointed me at the trail and said, this is going to be your friend because you need to take the impact off. And so started running trail and fell in love. Went from having done 50 Ks to going to quickly to a 50 miler and then did my first 100 in 2015 then did another one the following year and then I did one this year too so I've done three 100s and tons of 50s and 100ks and 50ks in between all that so this is a good um, parallel for me because you were like a serious runner for a long time and a yeah. serious marathoner too, a serious road marathoner. You were laying down some good times. Yeah. I and you tra- I, I transitioned into the, yeah. And you transitioned into this ultra running world and seemed to have done it successfully. Yeah. So this is good for me. You can give me the secret. So I'll start you off with some easy questions. How's that? Okay. Sounds good. So what are the pros and cons of stepping up to a hundred mile race? Hmm. The Pros are that, especially since you've done so much running for years and years as a marathoner, you already know how to train in the sense of being dedicated, right? Your training's going to change, but you're dedicated. You understand you have to follow a plan. Yeah. And you're going to test yourself in a new way. And I think you're going to be amazed at what you're capable of, because I know you probably reflect and you go, gosh, some of these marathons I finish. And at the end, I cannot imagine going one step further. Right. Um, or even right. your 50 mile, right. You go, I don't know how people double that. So yeah, the wonder of, wow, what, what your body, human body and mind, because that your mind is a huge part of it can do the cons, the hardest part for me initially with all trail running was getting over the fact that like when you're road marathoning, your pace is something you're, you're looking for that consistency or your negative split, right? When you're trail running, mm-hmm. that goes out the window. Because one yeah. mile, you might be doing a 12-minute mile, and then the next mile, you might be hiking a 20-minute mile because you're going up this amazingly steep mountain. So that was a huge thing in my mind, was letting go of a pace and knowing that it was going to be all over the place. At the same time, I found before when I trained for that 50-miler, I just loved it. Because the training yeah. went from a whole bunch of intensity to just a whole bunch of easy volume. Yep. Yeah. And it went from yeah. all roads to all trails, which I love the trails. Yep. 
you do. I mean, you get to go, gosh, I get to go at a conversational pace for four hours today instead of going, okay, I got two miles warm up and then I got to go 18 miles really hard and then I got two miles to cool down and then I'm going to be spent, right? It's a very different, yeah. very right. different way of doing things for sure. Yeah, and, like for example, tomorrow morning I'm waking up at 5 a.m. to do uh, seven by seven, right? So yeah. <laughs> little, little 1600 workout. I've been working so long. Yeah. No, so you've done really, three, you've done three 100s at this point. Have yes, you DNF'd any? I did. So I've finished three. I DNF'd one, and that was Angela's Crest this summer in August past. I fell at mile 21-ish, took a pretty bad fall, lost a bunch of time because the medics wouldn't let me leave the aid station after I came in. They were checking me out, and then by the time they said, you're good to go, I would lost so much time, and then I started cramping, so I kept losing time, and then I just, I got to mile 41, and I was like, I cannot keep fighting all day against cutoffs like this, so I DNF'd that one, but I'm going back this summer. I'm in that this summer, so I'm going to make it right. That's a very hard course, right? I mean, they're all hard courses. It's 100 miles, but that one has a lot of elevation in it, right? A lot of mountains. A lot of mountains. You're at altitude above 7,000, 8,000 feet for quite some time. You hit like 9,000 something. Actually, when I fell, I was at one of the highest points in the course. And that's probably why I fell because it was, I was feeling kind of a little gross from being like higher altitude. I've had some struggles with getting myself above 8,500 feet. I don't always respond Mm. super good. So yeah, I um, I don't like that all that much either. Yeah, you get a little, like, loopy. Your brain isn't 100%, and body just doesn't act the same way as it so normally what, does. What would be, you know, your biggest or your top three challenges in making this transition to the ultra? I think so. It sounds funny. It sounds so simple, but learning how to eat yeah. on the run for that because you can't just live on gels or blocks. You have to actually eat real food. So, I mean, there was many times early on in my first 100-mile cycle training that I would say, okay, I'm going to try to eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, a quarter, and I'd eat it, and then you'd feel, aw- and I'd feel awful for a couple of miles because my gut was just not used to putting solid food in it while I was running. So I'd say fueling is a challenge. Some people are more lucky than others. I have friends who they can eat, like, pizza, quesadillas, like, they can eat anything, and they're fine. I'm a little bit more picky. And then balancing your training because you want to have a lot of volume, right? For me, I'd done these 50Ks, I'd done a 50-miler, but I'm like, I want to know that I can handle going beyond that. So doing things, I would do like a 30-miler one day, and then the next day you get up and you do like a 15 or a 20-miler. And so getting up that second day and you're like, oh, this is going to suck because you're really tired. So it's it's figuring all of that out and what your body can handle because you obviously don't want to overtrain and end up injured. I'd say those are the two hardest things to figure out because everybody's different. I'm sure in all the people you'll talk to, you'll talk to people who say, oh, I get by on 50 miles a week training for these things. And then you'll talk to people who are like, oh, I do 120 miles a week. So everybody's different. Not one size at all. So so your eating challenge is unique or I guess different because you're vegan, right? So how do you keep up with the calories? Because that's, if you're running 30 miles, that's like what? Three, four thousand calories? Yeah, you don't have to eat a lot. So I can do PB and J now for sure. I, I bring those on my training runs or I can bring those that put those in my drop bags at races. I mean, most races provide those as well. I do the little tiny potatoes. I roast those 
with a bunch of salt and a little olive oil. And those are great in my pack. Same thing with sweet potatoes. I'll do like sweet potato wedges and like a little coconut oil on those is really good. You need a little bit of good fat. What else do I eat? I mean, I do do some blocks and gels, like traditional endurance fuel and then candy. (laughs) That sounds awful, but you do eat some candy. At least I do like jelly beans. They have those at a lot of races around here. The Jelly Belly brand. Oreo cookies. Yeah. But you have to be able to. Yeah. You have to be able to carry something, right? Yeah. You do. You have to have a pack. Yeah. You're going to be at the mercy of the, whatever they're serving on the race course. And that's not always great stuff. Yeah. And so for me, for any race, unless it's like a half marathon, I will definitely carry my pack. I've gotten to the point where having my pack on doesn't even, I don't even notice it, right? The weight of it, the weight on my body. So I just load it up, whatever I think I'm going to need. And then that way I always make sure I have my backup so that if I do roll into an aid station, I have stuff great. I don't have to worry, but some of them definitely don't have as many things. What do you do for fluid? Do you have the camelback or the vest or you carry a bottle? What do you do for fluid? Yeah, I have a couple of vests. I have a Nathan, and I actually just got an Ultimate Direction vest that I won in a contest on Strava, which is really cool. And those all have the capacity to do two liters, like the two-liter bladder. Mm. And then um, and you can and also like do flat. like the soft like, bath. But it's like the bladder's yeah. flat. It's like part of the clothing, right? Exactly, yeah. So you dare, get really used to carrying that. Yeah, dare, um, dare I say it's a it's a water jacket. It is kind of like a water jacket. <laughs> That's a funny way of thinking of it, but it is. <laughs> it is. It's your water yeah. jacket. I put in my water during the winter. I don't put any stuff in there for electrolytes. It's just not hot enough, right? But then when it's hot, then you have all the, like, tailwind and different stuff that you can throw in there. So that's all I was going to say about the fluid. What were you going to say? No, vests are good because they have a bunch of pockets too. So you can stick all kinds of stuff yeah. in there. Yeah, you can have your phone and your any other fuel you want. And, and your headlamp, if you're going to be in the dark, you need to have a place to have your headlamp and extra batteries. So yeah, pack is, pack so is what, essential. You're going to need to get one. What's your training like or what should it be like for that first one? What's your longest long run? What's your weekly cadence? So for my First one, I used a plan online that I found, and it had me, I can't remember what my max mileage was, but you ran like five times a week, and you had one weekly, midweek long run that over time would build up, so you'd be running like a 12 or 15-mile run in the middle of your week, and then you'd have a couple like maintenance runs, and then you'd have your long run on the weekend that would max out usually at about 30 miles. But the kicker was then yeah. the next day getting back out and doing like 15 to 20. Yeah. Your volume goes way up as you get closer. Those doubles, as awful as they are, they are, in my book, if your body can hold up for those back-to-back long runs, are essential because you do not want to run the next day. And it really gives you the feeling of how your legs are going to feel at mile 70, where you're just like, I don't want to run. Yeah. Did you do any overnights? I did. I did a couple, especially the first training cycle, because I had never run on being really fatigued. So yeah, I think it's really important to run when you're really tired like that. Practice your headlamp. Realize you're going to go so much slower in the dark, especially on trail, because you don't want to fall and kill yourself. 
And you just, because you're tired, you do slow down. It's rare that a person can keep that same pace that they can keep during the daytime at night. So yeah, definitely practice that nighttime stuff. Very important. Did you do any um, two-a-days? Like run in the morning, run at lunch, run in the evening? Yeah, yeah. Definitely did some of that. My kids are great for keeping me on the two-a-days because they run. And so I typically run in the morning. That's just sort of my preferred time to get out and run. And so then in the afternoon, one of them will want to go for a run. And so I go with them. And yeah, it's really good because you're kind of like, I already did this. But your body gets used to running at any time of the day. I think that really helps. And also some of my training runs that are going to be like 20, 30 miles, I won't start them until like 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning, which is kind of a mind bender. I Hmm. think I even started one at noon once. And so then you're a little bit more like you're full because you've eaten more. It's different. So if you can afford yeah. to do some of that stuff, I think it's good. Yeah, I think the that sounds almost exactly like the cycle I went through for that 50-miler I trained for mm-hmm. 10 years ago. And I think the yeah. longest run I did was probably uh, 30 to 36 on a Sunday. And okay. I had plenty in the tank for that 50. Good. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's starting runs at different times because when you're training for road races, it's like, you know, the earlier you get out, the better, right? You just get it done because most road races start at 7, 8 o'clock in the morning. So, but with these longer and 100 milers, 50 milers, whatever, you're not going to only be running in the morning. You're going to be running through lunch, through dinner. So it's important to be out there at those times and kind of learn how to, to work through it. And there's temperature changes on most of these because they go in the summer typically. So the one I'm running is going to be late summer. So you're going to get the temperature gradients during the day. Yep. So you get to yeah. practice that you, a little bit. And you're going to have humidity. Burning River yep. is still humid. That's a humid one. But you're running humidity. It's humid in, in Massachusetts. So yeah, for me, that would be really problem, hard. Yeah, the challenge that gives me a couple of challenges. One is just the sweat rate. So i got to mm-hmm. find a way to replace 40 ounces an hour if I'm working hard and then you get wet too, which turns all your clothing into sandpaper. Yes. Yeah. Chafing. Oh, that reminds me when you say that I ran, it's called the Headland Tundra. It's here in the San Francisco Marin Headlands. And I ran that this summer and it was super foggy the first day. We don't deal with humidity in California. If it's humid here, it's really not humid, but it was super humid from the fog. And I was maybe 20 something miles into that run. And I was like, what is this that's happening to me? (laughs) I'm (laughs) chafing in areas of my body I had never chafed. And fortunately, because it was local, one of my pacers was still close to where I live. I texted him and I was like, I need new clothes and I need a huge, huge tub of anti-chafe cream. And so he brought that up and I did a complete wardrobe change and like lubed myself up. And even then I still battled with it because it was like the damage was already done. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's not going to kill you, but it's really uncomfortable. Yeah. It becomes something that you focus on when you're tired. You're like, oh, this really is bugging me. Yeah. And Um, there's... A couple of particular places, uh, probably different on men and women, that are really uncomfortable if yes. you miss your lubrication protocol. Yes. So, yeah, I'm with, I'm with you on that. Yeah, so practice using that stuff. Just become good at it. Because, yeah, I, it took me completely off guard. I was awful. Yeah. And <laughs> so did you um, notice any weight fluctuation as you went through the training cycle? Like, did you lose a bunch and then your body kind of figure it out or 
You know, the first year, yes, I lost and I had to be cognizant towards the end of the cycle to um, eat enough and and not get too lean because you don't want to get so lean to the point where you can't, you don't have any energy to keep moving. But I think now my body's kind of used to it. So I feel like I'm kind of like at a point where I actually have to be more careful about what I eat. But yeah, I mean, you definitely run a 30 mile run in training. You come home and you're so depleted. And sometimes what happens, and you know this from any running is, you're hungry, but you're not. Like, you know you need to be eating, but you might, your stomach might be a little off. So it's really the yeah. days after. So a lot of times it's not that night. Because a lot of times that night you come home, you're like, all I want to do is take a shower and go to bed. I'm like, maybe have a piece of toast. So it's really the days following that you've got to be good about getting your good nutrition and getting some good protein and carbs in. Yeah. For sure. It's, it's an interesting thing. Your body gets really, really good at it, though. Quickly. Well, that's what I that's what I remember from that training cycle was like the first two weeks I lost a bunch of weight and then my body figured it out and it was like okay after that it was like okay this is all normal yeah no problem it's funny our bodies are very very smart and they adapt quicker than you can imagine because people say that yeah. to me all the time they go you must eat all day long and I'm like no not really <laughs> yeah, because you you get to the point where you're just not burning that much fuel. You're super efficient at that slow pace. So. Exactly. Yeah, it's like that slow burn and your body just kind of, yeah, I mean, because I can run at a long endurance pace. I can run like a 20-mile run and barely need to eat. I don't really get hungry. Yeah, I mean, I've been over the last few years just in road racing, I just started feeling like all that sugar was bad for you. Yeah. Um, and yeah. even the some of the less sugary, more, I don't know, malt products. Yep. You know, I said, well, let's see. I got plenty of fat. Let's just see what I can do. And I've sort of trained myself to run on fat. So I, I did two and a half mm-hmm. hours yesterday with just water and yep. a couple gulps from uh, my green smoothie, which I make in my blender at home. No, and I think I do because... Occasionally, like I get up real early and like on a Sunday and I might do like a pre-dawn run like for two hours and I won't eat. I'll bring my water with me and I'll have like emergency backup food just in case I bonk. But yeah, I think we become super efficient and doing that also helps your body learn to go into your fat reserves versus just looking for that quick blood sugar, right? The glycogen. Yep, exactly. Your body figures it out. Yeah. So what's your worst story from these uh, 100-mile races that you've done? What's the one that's going to make me uh, squeamish? I'm thinking probably the Angelus Crest story when I DNF because it was I fell in such a way that, like, I fell down a, the face of a cliff, basically, like on the side of the mountain, and thought I broke my nose, thought I shattered my teeth initially. A woman who was running behind me grabbed my legs as I was sliding down the cliff or the steep. It was like this really steep embankment. Had she not caught me, I probably would have gone really far. And that's kind of a scary thought to think Mm. what could have happened. Yeah. And I gashed my leg really badly. I was in pretty bad shape. And then I had to get from there three miles to aid. A photographer was nearby, actually. He had hiked up from the aid station. He helped me get down. And then it was literally, like I said, it was that I was really doing well time-wise. I was, like, right where I wanted to be. I had wanted to finish that race. That race could do 33 hours, and I was on pace for, like, a 29-hour. And all of that and then the time in the aid station just burned through my time. And then what happened was I got crampy, and I think probably because I was a little off with my electrolytes from sitting, 
And then I was fighting the cramps and my legs, I mean, I would come into aid stations and it looked like I had aliens inside my calves moving. It's just, I was so off. Yeah. I mean, I would say that that was probably my worst. My other two, I honestly, my other two 100s had the most picture perfect races and everybody kept telling me you're going to have a bad race one day. And then I had it at Angela's Press. What's your best moment that you remember from all this? Well, my first race in 2015, I had a pace start, but I said to my crew and my pacers, I'm not going to look at it. This is just cutoff. And as long as I'm meeting cutoff, I don't want you to tell me where I'm at. I just want to run this thing. I don't want to worry about time because it's such a huge amount of time, right? If you have a 30-hour cutoff, you're just like, I don't want to keep thinking about time. So I did not pay attention to my watch. I actually had the screen so I could just see kind of like my pace at the moment and my heart rate. And then every time I came into aid stations, everybody was really excited in my crew. And I had no clue, no clue really how I was doing. And then actually, you remember Gordon from Running to Disney and This Running Life? He paced me. And he was pacing me at the very end, and I still didn't have a clue. And he said, you have no clue how you're doing, do you? And I was like, no. And so I finally looked at my watch at the cumulative time, and I realized I was going to finish it in under 25 hours. Brilliant. And I shocked, yeah. I shocked myself. I was like, there's no way I'm doing this. And so then that fueled me, and I went back the next year and did that race, and I broke 24. So Yeah, brilliant. It was like I ran brilliant. my race without – Stressing. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing feeling. Like finishing that and realizing I just ran my first 100 in 24 hours and some minutes. Amazing feeling. Right. So I would say simple. Simplify your stuff. Don't stress about the time initially because it's your first one. You can't. Just right. meet your cutoff. That's all about you want to worry about. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry about the time. You're right because I'm a type A person and I'll try to overdo it. But yeah. I think the thing that always works for me is to train as if you're going to race and then take it easy, right? Totally. The race come to you. Yeah. That's the best yeah. way to do it. All right. I'm going to have to let you go. I could talk to you all night, but I can't. I know. I know. I have to go home. Well, I'm very excited for you. I have to go home and eat my, my quinoa. Quinoa is amazing. That's a good food. I'm so excited for you, and I hope any questions you have, please, you know, ask me. My limited experience, I would help you any way I can, and enjoy the journey. You're going to learn a lot about yourself. Yeah. I bet. <laughs> and, and I was listening to another podcast today, and I cannot remember the quote, but basically it's something to the effect of, like, learning to accept discomfort, be friends with it. And there's so much yeah. truth in that to ultra running. And for every yeah. high, there's going to be a better. It. Or for every low, there's going to be a better high. Remember that as well. Yep, yep. High highs, yeah. low lows. Yep, yes. yep. All and right. And they always balance each other out in some way. So. All right. Awesome. Well, Keep me posted on how it goes. I will. Thank you. All right. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye. I will talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Okay, my friends, here is my wrap-up summary of my 30-day diet reboot that I did in January. So how did we do? I embarked on this 30-day diet reboot because I was getting heavier than my comfort zone, and more importantly, I wasn't feeling great. I decided to get myself onto a correction plan, a course correction that would set me up to be successful for my spring training season, 
And most people assume that since I'm a marathoner and an endurance athlete that I can eat whatever I want. Indeed, this is the way many endurance athletes think. This is the philosophy of the old-timers. Quentin Cassidy, once a runner, is often quoted as saying, If the furnace is hot enough, anything will burn. And it's true that lots and lots of exercise is a terrific way to control your weight and to stay healthy. But it's not the only thing. Ask any smart doctor and they will tell you exercise is one of the pillars to health. They will quickly add not smoking, drinking in moderation, and a healthy whole food diet with lots of fruits and vegetables. Especially as you get older. Even as a committed endurance athlete, I can no longer outrun a bad diet. It's not just a calorie burn. I don't know if it's a negative or a positive, but I'm in such good aerobic shape that my metabolism is rock bottom. If I wasn't burning those 5,000 plus calories a week, I would have to lower my daily calorie intake by 20 or 30%. And it's also about performance. Don't get me wrong. I was never going to win a race and never will. That's not the performance I'm talking about. I mean just feeling good when I'm racing and training. The performance boost or hit that I get from being lean and eating healthy is very noticeable in my workouts and in my training. And once you feel that, it's hard to go back to being heavy. Being lean makes the difference between hating a workout and enjoying a workout. It makes my training easier, higher quality, and way more enjoyable. I feel lighter on my feet, I have more energy in the workout, and I can execute them harder. I can't prove it, but I'm sure from my own experience that eating healthy and being lean prevents injuries as well when training and helps me recover faster. And that's really the choice. Would you rather drag through a workout with a three-beer hangover in the morning or hit it hard and joyously? Great. We all know what we'd rather do then why is it so hard? It's hard because your poor eating habits become burned-in habits, and you have to unwind those habits to get back to where you were living lean. Bottom line, since my summer training and fall racing season, I had managed to pick up some bad habits. As a result, I was heavy and dragging around too much weight. And I decided to go on a 30-day reboot to switch off those bad habits and replace them with good whole food. I have my 20th Boston Marathon coming up in April, and I need to train lean and race lean to respect that race. The advantage I have is that I already know what to do. I just have to do it. I have some good eating habits in place that I can anchor the 30 days around. I know I can get lean. I've done it before. I choose 30 days for these things as an arbitrary number, for the most part. I like to put an endpoint on these things because it tricks your mind into thinking the task at hand is smaller than it really is. It also gives you a way to tell yourself, all you have to do is make it to 30 days and you can stop. And this comes in handy when you're at that 10 or 15 day mark and you're hungry and you're not making much progress. It gives you a finite milestone to hang on to, so you can hang in there. I also choose 30 days because it's long enough to rewire habits. The traditional rule of thumb 
is that it takes 21 days to rewire a habit. So 30 days gives you that plus a buffer. It's long enough that you can see real progress in your actions and in your body. And I also got a coach. Do I need a coach? Not really. I already know what to do. But I do need a coach to watch over my shoulder and to make sure I don't get cute. So having Rachel look at my food logs every day and make suggestions, that keeps me going. It's part accountability. It's part teamwork. We're working together towards a goal. It's worth the investment. So how did I do? I am quite happy with what I accomplished. I leaned out my body. I feel much healthier. My workouts are easier, and I'm feeling that they're higher quality. I'm racing well. I have energy, and let's face it, I have confidence. And that can't be overstated. It's a young person's world in the workforce, and I'm at the point in my entropy where I'm fighting age bias. So that's a conversation I don't have to have when they all know I'm fitter than they are. I also managed to reset and rewire a number of my eating habits for the better, change that will persist into the foreseeable future. The numbers weren't really the purpose of this 30-day diet reboot, but I started out over 187 pounds, and I finished up somewhere around 176, 177. So 10 or 11 pounds is not significant on my frame, but it's it's still close to a 5% reduction in weight. I still can't see my six-pack, but I'm, I'm down a belt loop. More importantly, I'm loving my workouts and the amount of energy I have. I've got no injuries or sore spots. I feel great. I like the way my clothes fit. It's all good. Will I keep going? Yes, of course. Of course I will. Maybe not with as much focus, but the habits I formed will carry over. It works both ways. Unhealthy habits are hard to break. Good habits put up a fight as well. So, lessons learned. First lesson learned, don't preload. So I made the mistake of scheduling the start of this reboot in the future. And so I said, ah, I'm going on a diet in January and kind of went totally off the rails through the holidays. So, you know, I figured the holidays weren't a good time to focus on nutrition. And as a result, I went way too far the wrong direction in those last few weeks. I gave myself license to eat and drink that cost me probably six or seven pounds. So next time I do a diet reboot, I won't give myself as much runway. Second thing is prep, right? Meal prep is the key to staying on track in these things. You have to give yourself easy options. Each weekend, I make a week worth of packaged salads from kale and chard and spinach and all sorts of great veggies. I also make my own oil and vinegar dressing. I also prepare some dinner that I can eat a few days in a row. And if you don't do this, you will be at risk to fall off the plan when you're tired at night. Third thing you have to understand is it's nonlinear progress. I was a bit frustrated that those six to seven pounds that I crammed into December didn't just come off. I was sure they would, like in the first day. And the human body doesn't really care what you think it should do. Fourth thing is accountability. I made sure to set myself up for accountability. I hired Rachel to check my logs every day. I also committed to log every day. And this time I went above and beyond and wrote a blog post every day as well. 
So my goal was not only to get the community involved, to see what I was doing and to know how I was doing it, but also to have the community keeping me on track. The fifth lesson learned is habits. The win in these 30 days is rewiring your habits, breaking the momentum of unhealthy habits and building the momentum of healthy habits. So this way, it's hard to go back to where you were before. You've set up a series of habits that builds an emotional wall to backsliding. Sixth lesson learned is 30 days isn't really 30 days. Because you're laying down the infrastructure of good habits, the progress doesn't stop at the end of 30 days. I expect to keep leaning out as I train over the next 10 weeks into Boston, and this reboot sets me up on the glide path for that. And seventh learning, social situations. One of the big challenges of being on a diet reboot is that all the people around you that you need to interact with. And this includes social events like dinners and lunches and celebrations. And my strategy in these cases is to recognize the challenges for what they are and have a strategy going in. Don't be an a-hole, but try to minimize the bad stuff. Try to find a way to work around that birthday cake by taking a small portion or other strategies. Number eight lesson, change takes time. 30 days isn't enough to create real change. I didn't creep up to an uncomfortable level in 30 days. It took over a year. That's why I call it a reboot. The reboot will hopefully give me the momentum I need to get lean for this spring's training cycle and to stay lean through my ultra in the summer. Number nine, learning positive reinforcement. It's great being an endurance athlete because you can feel the change. The scale may not read what you want, but you feel it in your workouts and in your races. And this way you get the positive feedback you need to keep going. Number 10, there's always another day. Bad days and bumps in the road happen. You will fall off the wagon. The key is to beat the average. Do better the majority of the time. And it will pay off in the long run. There's always another day. You can't change the fact that you scarfed cookies, or in my case hummus. But tomorrow is a new day. So number 11, finally, you know, you want to start looking at the world through lean eyes. And the power of the reboot is that it changes your frame of reference. You start looking at things differently. You see the unhealthy choice that people make, and you try to do better yourself. You want lasting, significant change. And to get that, you have to break your frame of reference. You have to break the patterns. And that's what a reboot is good for. So I think this project was successful, and I'm looking forward to carry a lean lifestyle into a fast Boston marathon and helping others see what is possible when you change the way you think. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, you have worn your woman's underwear to the end of another Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-381, done and done. What's coming up for me? Not much, really. I'm sure my training will ramp up as we get into the final weeks before Boston. It sneaks up on you. I used my base date time to upgrade my race position. The BAA had accepted my Portland time, but they didn't take the adjusted time. They took the original net time, which was still a qualifier, but four minutes slower than what the race directors gave me. And that was because they screwed up the course and made us run an extra 
half a mile. So my base state time is a minute plus faster than that adjusted time. So six minutes faster than the time that the BAA gave me from Portland. And six minutes in the middle of the pack at Boston is probably 3,500 runners, something like that. Might even move me up a corral. So I'm not collecting for any charity for this year's race. It's my 20th Boston Marathon, and I'm running it for me, and I guess for you. I'm training for it. If we get decent weather, I'm racing it, and I'll do my best to respect it, and we'll celebrate it together. I'm humbled and grateful that this special race has become part of our lives 20 years Maybe I'll run it next year. Maybe I won't. But this year, I'm going to run, and I'm going to celebrate how lucky I am. So, like I alluded to in the introduction, we had some services this week. My wife lost an uncle, and we went to the wake and the funeral. And it was good to see her family, her cousins and her aunts and her uncles, and, you know, her our, her parents and my parents' generation is getting to that age. And I knew this uncle from her family events. He was a kind and caring man. And seeing his kids and the impact he had on his family by being that kind and caring man impressed on me some lessons. So you don't have to be a superhero or save the world to make a difference in this world. You just have to care for those around you. And you don't have to overtly do anything special to make a difference. You can make a difference just by being there, being present and caring. And your actions, even those daily run-of-the-mill activities that we all take for granted, they impact the lives of others. And in fact, it is those small, loving, and caring moments that have the most impact on the ones we love and care about. Live your life. Go through life with the understanding that everything you do has an impact on others. The hustle and bustle of career and stuff is not that important in the grand scheme of things. Keep it in perspective and take time to be present for the ones you love. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry.